Well, we're going to jump into Mark today. This is week, I think, 15 or 16 in the book of Mark. And just, so, just a reminder, we're going to take a break today. This is our last week in the Gospel of Mark for this year. It's, it's weird to start th- saying things like this is the last of this year because we're getting to that point. But we're going to kind of jump back into this around March or April as we get into Easter. Uh, we're already thinking about Easter. And so our last week, next week, we're going to start a series in October that focus, focuses on perspectives, lenses, spiritual sight, kind of in that theme. Uh, we're going to look at four questions, right? How do I see God rightly? I think that's imp- important for us to see God rightly. And then how does God see me? How does God see you? And then how do I see the world then? Lord, how do I see the world? And how do I see the others? And so we're just looking to increase perspective in our lives. The Lord says that we need to renew our minds. And so we're going to do that starting uh, next week in that, in that capacity. Uh, but for this week, we're going to head into the greatest commandment. Uh, our, su- our subtitle for the Gospel of Mark has been Servant Heart, Kingdom Mind. And we have certainly see that on display with Jesus. Jesus is different than anything else this world has ever seen. He has turned things completely upside down. The kingdom that he has ushered in doesn't focus on power or wealth or status, but rather God's kingdom is focused on faith and servanthood and self-denial. Flipped everything on its head. And people have noticed, as we've walked through the book of Mark, people have noticed something different in Jesus, something crazily different in Jesus, and they are enamored with him. And so he has drawn crowds that are ginormous. Just huge crowds are following Jesus because he's saying things that nobody's ever said before, and they're just, people are taking notice. But people aren't the only one. You've got the religious elites of the day. They're taking notice of Jesus in a lot different way. They're taking note of him in a very negative way because they're challenging him. He's become too popular. They don't know what to do with him. They're tired of him and they want him gone. And so this group of people is called the Sanhedrin. It's a big term, Sanhedrin. I use it in fantasy football as my name, the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is made up of three different groups of religious elites. There's the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the the, uh, scribes. And so just some differences in there. The the scribes are kind of the lawyers of the day. They're just looking in the law and trying to seek its application into people's lives. They're kind of getting into the technicalities. You got the Pharisees who are very much middle-class people who have a reverence for God, who are about keeping the the I and the dot, or the dot of the I, dotting the I and crossing the T of, of doing the law. And then you have the Sadducees who are kind of aristocratic. They're a little bit more elite in nature. And the two major differences between the Pharisees and the Sadducees are that the Pharisees, kind of when they interpret the law, they're okay using our first five books of our Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They pull out commandments in there, but they're okay using some other text and and oral traditions to establish the, the, the laws and the commands of the day. The Sadducees only take the first five books and say, that's God's will, we're not interpreting anything outside of that. And the second big difference between them is the Sadducees don't believe in resurrection. The Pharisees do believe in bodily resurrection. And so they're different, but they're all together, and they have one thing in common. They hate Jesus, right? And so they're trying to figure out how to get rid uh, of Jesus. Uh, They're furious with him, uh, not because just of his theology. Uh, They're furious with him in his assaults and and what seems uh, attacking his own religion. Uh, But they're also very concerned and, and, and furious with him because he's so popular. Jesus has literally banished illness from the land of Israel for the duration of his ministry. He has power 
over death. He has power over nature. He has power over the weather. He has power over demons. There is nobody that has ever existed in mankind's history that has this sort of power. And he's amassed a popularity unlike anything the world has ever seen before. When we talk about the triumphal entry a few weeks ago, when Jesus came into Jerusalem as this kind of celebrated king, there are many experts that believe that there were hundreds of thousands of people there cheering on what they thought was the arrival of the long-anticipated Messiah. They were there in massive and celebrating them, and so he had tons of popularity. And so here they are, these Pharisees, Sadducees, the Sadducees, they're not only being attacked uh, economically in operations like the temple that we talked about, but they're being attacked theologically. He's exposing them as hypocrites, as apostates, as spiritual frauds, as fakes. But now they're being attacked because of his popularity, because the crowds are all drawn towards Jesus. And so his popularity now begins to threaten things that are very close to them. Their power, to name one thing, their positions, and their money, their wealth. And so when we walked through the triumphal entry on Monday, that's, we're in Wednesday in the story of Jesus now. Jesus is going to be crucified on Friday. And in from Monday to Wednesday, they dial the pressure up because they got to get rid of this guy because he's making everything difficult for them. And so they go about trying to find a way to discredit them, to discredit Jesus. They want to get rid of him. They don't know how. They want him dead. They can't figure out because he's so darn popular. He's so massive in his popularity that they could not just wander into the camp and execute Jesus because they, they knew that they would see a rebellion like they've never seen a rebellion for in mankind's history. And so they've got to find a means to discredit him so the people turn on him. And they've got to figure out a way to get the Romans into this so that they can label Jesus as an insurrectionist, somebody who is amassing an army against the government against the state of Rome. And so they need Rome to get into this so they can say he's rebelling and the Caesar will execute him. And so what do they begin to do? They unravel and unpack these traps to try to catch Jesus doing and saying something that's going to make him unpopular with the people. The first one that we looked at was a couple weeks ago with the, with the Sanhedrin and the Herodians, like these two very different people that came together to try to spring a ta- trap with Jesus in the area of taxes. But Jesus answers their question in a way that they're just astonished. They are silenced, and they're like, okay, we're going to slide into the shadows here because that was really good. And then they bring the next group. This is all Monday through Wednesday here. They bring the next group. The Sadducees come in, and their attempt to un unmask Jesus, and they ask him a question about resurrection. And Jesus, we didn't go through the stories, but just know this, Jesus nailed it. He nails the answer in a way that they'd never heard before, and they, oh, dang it! Again, this guy, just slide back into the shadows. They regroup, and now they talk to the scribes. Now here comes the scribes, and they're going to try to trap Jesus using a very legal uh, questioned to talk about what the greatest commandment there is. Uh, and so this is what we're going to read here in Mark 12 today. I think it's interesting in this text, when we read about this scribe, this scribe feels like a guy that's watched all of Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and said, this guy 
is good, right? This guy's legitimate. And so there's some intrigue. I think there's, I think this guy is wrestling with like, he's really good, Jesus, all right? Something about him. And so I think it's interesting how he answers, asks this question and then his response to this question. So we'll read this together. Mark 12 says, and one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, he was talking about the Pharisees or the Sadducees here. He asked them, this is the scribes, which commandment is the most important of all? That's a trap. Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. Nails it again. And so he asked of all the commands, Lord, what is the most important? This is the question that the lawyer poses to him. And listen, he, he nails this answer. And you may think that it's an easy answer. But this is not an easy answer to an easy question. Look, there are many commandments that we find in God's Word. If you would open up your Bibles and you would get to the first five books, the Torah, you would find somewhere in the area of 613 different decrees and commands that the Lord has given to us. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees have taken those 613 and have become experts in them and applying them and putting them on the people. 613. And so, when he asked for one of 613, that's, that's not an easy question to answer. So what is at the core of this? Is this essentially what he's asking? Is it not to steal? Should we not murder people? Which commandment, if we do this right, which, which one, if we do this right, means that we're going to get mostly the rest of them right? Which one, if we will live that way, will we most likely be walking in the will of the Lord and what pleases him? That's what he's asking. And over the course of time, ever since those 613 commands and decrees have been spoken and uttered and put into law, teachers, rabbis, and prophets have try been trying to kind of simplify, reduce for better application in people's lives. They've tried to take those 613, which is tremendously hard to interpret and, and, and put into our lives and whittle them down to something that's more tangible. That's what any good teacher does, right? You take something very complex and you try to make it more simple and applicable to people's life. That's what my aim is to try to do, and that's what the Israelites have been trying to do for centuries. And so you have somebody like David. David comes along, and in Psalm 15, David takes these 613, and he whittles them down to 11 different decrees. And you can read that in your psalm. Go home. That's some homework for you. 11 different decrees about what it means to be righteous in front of the Lord. And then there comes a guy named Isaiah. And Isaiah takes those 613, and he whittles them down to six. Six different basic 
regulations, different decrees that will lead to fruitfulness and blessing in your walk with God. And then we have a guy named Micah. He's a prophet. He takes those 613 and he brings them down to three. And this verse is probably something that you've heard before. This is Micah 6. This is what he said. He said, he has told you, that's God, oh man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And so this is Micah taking all of those 613 and trying to whittle them down to things that are understandable, simple, applicable in your life. That's a tweetable phrase, right? We know that. But yet, there is some ambiguity in that. Like, what does it mean to really do justice? And how do you do justice and love kindness at the same time? And how do you love, walk humbly with your God and do justice and love kindness? How do you do all of those things together? It's a very great prophetic word, but there are some things that it doesn't answer for us. And then you get Jesus, right? Now comes Jesus, who answers what the prophets and the teachers have been trying to answer. What must we do to be blessed by God? What must we do to please God? What must we do to to obtain right standing with him? And he answers it in a way that nobody has ever answered before. Nobody has answered these two things together ever. You, you won't find them in the Old Testament put together like this. You won't find them in any scripture or text outside of it. Jesus puts two things together that have never been heard before. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, your mind, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so two commands is one. One that serves as the primary and the other that acts as a barometer to gauge how well you're doing the first. Love God with all that you have, and you can see rightly if you're doing that, if you're loving your neighbor as yourself. These are fascinating words by Jesus. He gives us a very complex maybe sentence in a very practical way to know if we're doing this well. Fascinating words. And we see the scribe is blown away by this. Here's a religious expert of the day. He says, you're right. (laughs) Somebody finally sees Jesus is right. And so he says that all of those things that he said were better than all of the burnt offerings and all of the sacrifices that anybody could make. Love of God and love of people is better than anything that we could give to God. Love is better than anything that we could give to God. And so because this phrase and this command is so significant, we need to spend some time today just speaking about it and breaking it down a little bit to really grasp the understanding. I think that we know, we like the word love. Right? We love the word love. We use it a lot. Uh, but what does it mean? Like, I, I love my kids. I love my wife. I love Notre Dame. I love the Cubs. I love lamp. I love food. Does it all mean the same thing? Right? And I think that you would be right to understand that love is different here when Jesus says it. What Jesus is saying in love is this word agape. Maybe you've heard of the word agape before. It's Greek for for love. There are three different words in Greek for love. Jesus uses agape as love in this sentence. And agape love is a selfless, sacrificial, unconditional love. Selfless, 
sacrificial, unconditional love. And the best way that I could ever help you tangibly see that is to think about you who, who have been blessed to have children, who have been fortunate to have them or been called. And I, I don't, I'm going to be careful. I know that, that there can be struggle with wanting to have kids. I want to be walking this very carefully. But, but if you have children, you know this kind of love. Maybe not perfectly, but like when I had, like when, before we had Camille, like everybody said like the whole, oh, just wait. You're not gonna, you, you don't know love. You're, you're gonna just, and I just, okay. Like, I got this love thing. It's true. Like it is just undeniably true. I cry at commercials now. My life has been changed. I, I love more deeply because I got this little girl, two little girls now. And so that love is unconditional, sacrificial, and it's selfless. That's a good picture of what agape love looks like. And look, this is the love that God has for you. This is the love that God has for you. It's unconditional, sacrificial, and it's selfless. It is not even about you. Zero percent about you. It is all about God's nature. God is love, right? He doesn't love the unlovely or the unlovable because we earned it or we have something super special or excellent about us. God loves you because it's his nature. And he will always be true to his nature. And so he has a deep and profound love that he's asking us to return to him. And so when we say that love is unconditional, it's selfless, it's not just emotional, right? We've talked about the, the cautiousness that we should have in our emotions. It's not overly emotional. Love is not just a feeling. It's, it's, it's doing and acting outrightly. Love does the best for the one in which we have affection for, right? Love works and acts for the best interest of the ones that we love and, a, and adore, that's what this kind of love is. And that's what God is asking us to do for him. So we love unconditionally. We love selflessly. And we're to do it in every facet of our lives. Every area of our lives. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so when Jesus says heart, soul, mind, and strength, I mean, it sounds very self-explanatory. But let's make sure that we understand fully what he's saying here. When he says heart, he's talking about the seat of your will, the seat of the will, the, the intellect and your emotion, that, that inner person, that your personality, that inner part of you, that that is to love God with everything it's got. Your soul, it, what he means is your desire, that you would desire God with everything that you got. Your mind is about understanding that in all your understanding, you would love God, that he would be woven in everything that you know and see and do, that you would understand him fully in his love. And the last one is really self-explanatory, your might, your strength, or your power, that whatever is happening to us in our life, that we would love God with all of our strength, no matter what is going on, that we would love him through everything in our strength, in our might, all that we can, all that we face. So that's what it means to, to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so when you look at that, there really isn't anything reciprocal to the nature of that kind of love. We love God and we seek God for his own self, not for yourself. And that may sound contradictory because we need God 
And we need to love God for our own benefit. But maybe you've heard this phrase, we don't love God and we don't, we don't seek God for his hand. We seek God for his face. We love God because he earned it. Because he's worth it. Because he's due our love not in hopes that we get something reciprocal back in it. It's not for the things that he does for us or might do for us. We love God for his own sake because he's worthy and he's worth it. And as we love God for his own sake, for his own worth, for his own majesty and glory and honor, God asks us as he transforms our lives to love others as ourselves. And so what does it mean, you know, this phrase neighbor gets kicked around. What does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? Well, a neighbor is anybody that you cross your paths with. It's not Bill next door or Larry and Linda next door. It's everybody you come in contact with. Whether that's, listen, phys physically, our world has changed. And so that definition is going to brought out on the internet Anybody who crosses our sphere of influence that we interact with, we are to love them as the Lord has loved us. We are to love them as we would want to be loved there. Anyone who crosses our path. And this is a core value that we have at this church, is that we would practice love with everyone always. That we would show care and concern with people as much as possible, as long as possible. And it's a love that's not rooted just emotionally. It's not just rooted emotionally. This is a love that wants what the best for the people that we care for. And sometimes that means having some hard truth. That means about loving them unconditionally because you want better for them than they want for themselves. Jesus wants better for you than you want for yourself. And so loving our neighbor doesn't look like we just, okay, whatever. Uh, whatever you do, I'm going to love you. That's true. But it doesn't mean that we say, look, I don't know if that's the, what the Lord has for you. You have a father that loves you and wants to see you flourish, friend. And so we revere God, we revere his creation, and, and we love the objects of God's love. And so that love for neighbor really comes as an overflow of the first. This is an overflow of the first commandment. To love your neighbor as yourself. That's what we're to do as followers, as believers. It all comes down to love, guys. I know that sounds so sappy. Uh, it's hard for me to even say that sometimes. It all comes down to love just because of the way that we kind of package love. Uh, that's what God cares about. It's central to his being. That's what he's commanded us to do. And it's, it's not a love that just somehow could ignore the needs of others. It doesn't. The two most important commands together as one, as if it were your left hand and your right hand, when you love God and love people, you offer up the most important sacrifice to our Lord. Loving others as ourselves is a pleasing sacrifice to our Lord. And look, if you get this, if you can love God and you can love other people, if you get it, you got it. If you get that, you got it. Love God and love the people around us. It sounds so simple, doesn't it? But there's good news and there's bad news in this. 
right? There's good news in this. The good news is, is, is that, that, that God has created an, an equal playing field in salvation for all of us. He is an equal opportunity employer because you don't have to have power or title or wealth. He doesn't care where you were born, what side of the tracks you live on. He doesn't care where you came from, your economics level. Everyone can love God and love others. Everyone. This is what Jesus has done since he walked the face of the earth. He has removed barriers and obstacles that get in the way of you and God. And he is saying, everybody can partake in pleasing me by loving me and loving God. It's no longer about the temple. It's no longer about sacrifices and burnt offerings. It's about love. Isn't that great? That's the good news. The bad news is we don't do it. We don't do it. Loving God and neighbor is something that we only do with a portion of ourselves. God commands us to do it. Jesus calls us to do it. But we know within ourselves that we don't really love God with all of our heart. Instead, we love him with some of our heart, a little bit of our soul, a fraction of our mind, and a portion of our strength. And the rest we keep for ourselves. So here's some truth and reality. Guys, there are pockets of rebellion in every heart, in every flesh in here. There are parts of you that resist God and do not want to surrender to him in love. We love God to some extent, some more than others, but we keep them out of certain areas that we have deemed untouchable. We keep them out of certain places as conditional. Maybe for you, it's like your kids. Like if something ever happened to one of your kids, then God stepped over the line. And I don't know if I could follow that. Maybe it's your spouse. If something happened there, then that's over the line. Maybe it's your money or your name your house, that if God messed with those, it's not my, this, that deal might be broken. And so our love for God seems to often live in the only ifs. God, I love you only if things go what, like I want them to. God, I love you conditionally based upon you doing what I think you should do. But that's not what God has called us to do. Love him with all. Don't you wish that word all wasn't in there? But it is. All of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. It's impossible, guys. These commands sound like simple. But listen, it's impossible. It's because there's a natural state of man, our flesh, that makes this impossible. There is no greater evidence for the inability of man to obey God's law than this one command. Think about this, guys. In the garden, we had one boundary. 
Don't eat from the tree. Don't touch this. Everything else. And we didn't do it. We couldn't do it. And Jesus mercifully and gracefully has given us two commands as one. Love God, love people. And it's simple, but yet we can't do it. If you want evidence for a brokenness inside of you, as something that has gone wrong in all of us, it's this. We can't do just two simple things. And this reveals, friends, brokenness in heart. And it is there to lead you to repentance and surrender to a Savior who loves you, cares for you, despite your imperfection. This is a command from God. We are to love God with everything that we have, love people as ourselves 24 hours a day, and it is inhumanly impossible for a reason because we can't. And listen, when we disobey any command of God, it's sin. Any command of God, it's sin. Therefore, without even considering the sins that we commit on a daily basis, we are all condemned by our inability to fulfill this one command. Without the cleansing of Jesus Christ for our sins, we cannot do this. Without being empowered by the presence of the living God, the Holy Spirit that lives in the lives of those who are redeemed, we cannot love God and love others to any sort of degree that we should. And so these commands sound great, and they are great, but they're there to expose us as well. This is what we live for and towards and pursue, but they very much expose who we are. And we are to walk in grace and mercy and love from the Father. His, his death on the cross and His grace is so scandalous for us that He meets us right where we're at in our imperfection and in our sin. And He says, I agape love you unconditionally. He wants us to surrender and walk towards that in our life, equipped by the grace and the love of the mercy that picks us up after every poor decision. God is okay with you just where you're at, but listen, he's not okay with you staying there. And so we are to walk towards the idea of loving God with all that we have and loving neighbors as ourselves. And so I, I want to leave today with, with giving you just four really practical ideas that will help maybe create some momentum in this area as we pursue this noble and honorable thing. Uh, number one is this is if you've got to learn to ignore the outer and the inner enemy in you. Like, there is an enemy that is bent on deceiving you, destroying you, and there is a flesh, a fallen side of you that wants you to pursue everything that feels good to you. And so, friends, I, I just want to remind you, you are broken and in lots of ways, we're incapable of doing very small tasks like loving God and loving others. 
we need to be informed by the truth of what God says about us. The Word says that we are to renew our mind. Do you know how hard that is, to renew your mind? When I was going through depression in, in my life, there, there was a voice, and maybe this voice is in you. There was a voice that said, you're not good enough, nobody likes you, you're unworthy, every day. And for a good chunk of my life, I believed those lies. But you know when it changed? It's when I knew the truth. When I said, you know what, that's a lie. The truth is, is that God says this about me. What are you going to say about me? This is what the Lord says I am. I'm priceless to him. I'm worth his sacrifice. Get this good enough out of here. I don't need your deception. And do you think those voices went away? No, they're still there. But the truth is much louder in my life. So you've got to learn to eliminate the lies that are deceiving you. The second thing is that you have to have a God-given vision for your walk with him. Have a vision for your walk with God. I, I just think that we've got to the place where we just get out of bed and hope to survive the day. That we just get out of bed and we just hope we make it to our bed at the end of the night. But if we're going to pursue loving God with all of our hearts, mind, soul, strength, you can't do it if we're not intentional to doing those things. Have a vision for the person that God created you to be and be intentional to it. Have a purpose and a mission that was defined by God to be something different than you are right now. Because if you don't, how do you think you'll ever get there? Have a vision for your walk with God. Have a purpose to where you're going, friend. Number three is, is don't betray the Spirit in you. Don't betray the Spirit in you. I, I, I like to say it this way. Uh, when I walk into the house sometimes, uh, and Nikki's been working uh, all day, maybe there's some dishes in the sink. And there is something in me that looks at those dish piles and says, you could really love Nikki by doing this. Husbands, you've heard that voice before. But then what happens? Yeah. You know what? Um, I don't want to. You know what? She should have done those. She should have done those. And then what do you begin? You begin to rationalize. Why is she doing this to me? You know? And so if I would have just obeyed the voice inside of me that said, love your wife, instead of betraying that, I wouldn't have walked into any of those rationalities. And the same is true for us believers. I know this because I feel it and I hear it and I know that you too, that when we interact with people, that there is a still small voice within you that says, I want you to go deeper here. I want you to love here. I want you to do this differently here. But yet because of, I don't know if it's our defense mechanisms that we have just established in the way that we live life, but we constrict that. And we rationalize that we shouldn't do those things. Listen, that still small voice is the Holy Spirit of God telling you to love, to care, to sacrifice. Don't betray that. Listen to it. And the more you get good at listening to that, the easier it is to hear it. And the fourth thing is this, is reject your pride, friends. Reject your pride, these commands are here to expose us as incapable, as broken. 
why do we think in this culture that we have to portray this image that we have it all together? Listen, nobody believes you. Nobody believes me. They shouldn't if I said that I have it all together. We are always about trying to keep up appearances, but that's not what the Lord has asked us to do. If you want to pursue these things in your life, if you want to love the Lord your God, if you want to reach this, then you've got to be willing to share where you're missing it. And if you're not honest about where you're missing it, then your pride is getting in the way. It's okay to say I'm weak. It's okay to say I'm doing this wrong. Nobody is shocked. Why? Because we live there too. Only by the grace of God do we walk well. And so today we want to end our time um, as we thank God for the gospel of Mark. We want to end our time just thinking about that pride and that brokenness that, that's in us, that, that, that serves as an obstacle in the realization of God's love for us and our love for God. And we want to come around a time of communion and allow you some just moments of time to reflect about your own heart, about your own life, about the areas that you're missing it in. If we want to reach this commandment of love, where are we missing it? Let's have a moment of honesty. Don't be distracted by all the things that you got to do afterwards or want to do now or what anybody else is doing in this room. But can we just take a moment to spend time with our Lord and confess our hearts, praise Him, thank Him, make our, get right with Him. And then we want to join in celebration for how deeply He served us how deeply he's loved us, how deeply he's cared for us. As we come around, cross, or around the table of communion here, uh, we take the juice, which symbolizes the blood of Christ that was shed for our sins that covers us. Uh, the broken body of Christ that was broken for our sin on the cross. And we take up these things as the family of God to celebrate a good and loving Father moving heaven and earth in all obstacles so that we might live with him. And so, friends, take a moment here as we have our band play to reflect on your heart. If you're in here and you've never made a decision to follow Jesus, look, we love that you're here. Take this moment to ponder and think. Just sit quietly. Know that, that, that this is a time for the family of God to celebrate what their Savior has done. It is okay to not partake of the emblems if you're not there yet. But for those of us who have, let's celebrate as a family. So the band's going to lead us, and whenever you're ready, join us at the table.